It's Elise here, back with episode six. Thank you so much if you're listening again, and as always, welcome if you're a new listener. Today is actually our last BC episode. I'm going to be talking about a few different things, so I like to try to usually put things in similar groups, as I'm sure you've noticed in other episodes. But the stories today are awesome locations, but they don't really necessarily fit with anything else. So I hope you don't mind bouncing around a little bit with me today. Um, so first, I'm going to be talking about a crazy attraction called the Hell's Gate Air Tram. Next, I'm going to delve into the mystery of Nanaimo's Kanaka Pete. I'll then share with you a little very creepy tale about Beacon Hill Park. And finally, I'll bring you the sordid tale of the famed architect Francis Rattenberry and two places that he's said to haunt. As always, to see photos and articles that helped me in my research, as well as locations and tour information, please head over to Real Scary Podcast for the episode 6 blog. So the first place I'm going to talk about is the Hell's Gate Air Tram. It's located on the Fraser River, three and a half hours from Kelowna, and about one and a half hours from Chilliwack, to give you some perspective. So when explorer Simon Fraser first traveled, as he put it, the quote, awesome gorge in 1808, he wrote in his journal that surely we have encountered the gates of hell. So since that day, the narrow 35 meter passage in the Fraser Canyon has been known as Hell's Gate. The gold rush brought with it prospectors by the thousands And the numbers of those who met untimely deaths, starvation, and madness outnumbered those who found the fortune that they wanted. About 20 years later, the Canadian Pacific Railway also took a number of lives in its construction through the canyon's tough and unforgivable terrain. Now, in the 1900s, the Trans-Canada Highway allowed people to travel by automobile through the canyon. However, there were many instances of unsafe road conditions causing drivers to plunge into the water below. This brings us to present day where the modes of travel have become far safer, and you can now get a spectacular view of Hell's Gate from an air tram that travels 340 meters across the gorge and back. Now you might be thinking, that's neat, but how's an air tram haunted? It's not the air tram itself, but there are many sightings around this area, including a little gift shop and restaurant on one side of the gorge called Simon's Cafe. The building where the gift shop is was once a cookhouse for railway workers, and supposedly you can smell fresh baked apple pie. There's also the apparition of a small woman wearing a bonnet and an old-fashioned dress, who perhaps cooked back then and is still hanging around. There are the common shadow figures and things falling off shelves that are a usual observation from employees and tourists. On the observation deck, there's an apparition of an Asian man who tourists have reported seeing. It's widely known that during the construction of the CPR, there were many, many migrant Chinese workers who worked on the job and subsequently many who lost their lives. People believe that he could be one of these such workers. In the restaurant itself, there have been reports of smelling cigar smoke, and some have even seen the apparition of a man in a far corner of the building, casually smoking a cigar. A popular haunted item at the spot is the haunted stove, or Johnny's stove. It's on display, and I would assume near the gift shop. The legend goes that there was once a very skilled chef named Johnny. 
he would make sure that all the railway workers would have a warm and delicious meal ready for them at the end of the day. One night, Johnny was nowhere to be found, and a replacement was quickly found as the meals still needed to be prepared. But Johnny's stove would not light. A number of people tried with no success. They founded a search party and went out to find Johnny, and happily he was found and came back to the camp. To the awe of everyone who tried, Johnny fired up the stove and went to work with no issue. Now, Johnny worked at that stove until he passed away on July 10th, 1890. And it's said that every year on the anniversary of his death, the stove feels warm, though no fire has been lit for years. Employees believe that Johnny and the mystery of his stove are connected to other eerie things that occur in the gift shop. The last and most sinister apparition is that of a shadowy man who's been seen near the gold panning station. The creepiest part of all, to me at least, is that he has two red-eyed dogs on the end of a leash. He's said to evoke very, very strong negative emotions and strong reactions from animals as well. He's thought to have been either a violent prospector, hence his present by the gold panning station, or a sadistic overseer during the CPR construction. He's been named Edward by the staff. So if you decide to visit Hellsgate Airtram, be sure to keep an eye out for any spectral visitors. Check out Johnny's stove, and if you decide to pan for gold, be sure to have your wits about you, as Edward could be waiting for the right moment to show himself. The next story is quite the tale. (laughs) This is the story of Kanaka Pete and the haunting of Kanaka Bay on Newcastle Island in Nanaimo. This is a popular campfire tale and is in fact rooted in actual history. The story goes that in the 1860s, there was a man by the name of Peter Kakua of Hawaiian descent who most likely arrived in BC with the Hudson's Bay Company. He settled in a little home with his wife and his baby, and they were obviously having some issues as he caught wind of his wife's plan to leave him. There are a few minor details that differ slightly, but basically, after having some drinks, he came home to see his wife packing. Her parents were both there and helping her pack. He left to find more drink to comfort himself, but as it was very late, all the pubs were closed. He went back to the home to supposedly find his wife engaged in an act of adultery with her own father. This sent Peter into a rage, who tried to grab his father-in-law off of his wife, and the fight began. The father actually bit off one of Peter's fingers, and his mother-in-law and wife were both hitting him. He claimed that he was caught up in a drunken rage, and he grabbed the first thing he could, which was an axe, and then he blacked out. When he came to, his wife, her parents, and their infant daughter were all dead. There's another version that supposedly Pete claimed that it was her father who grabbed the axe and came at him first. However, it doesn't appear that he ever denied killing the four victims. Supposedly, a neighbor had heard the sounds of a disturbance, screaming and some sort of impact around 2 a.m. He said it lasted roughly 10 minutes, but he didn't bother to check into it, just chalking it up to a domestic disturbance. Apparently, the neighbor said that it sounded like a quarrel between some man and his woman, and such noises are not infrequent in the neighborhood. The next part of the story is that Pete went to see his friend by the name of Tamalee. He was noted as clearly under the influence. He told Tamalee that he was going away. When his friend asked why, he told him what he had done, and in proof of the confession, he showed him the stump where his father-in-law had bitten off his finger. 
Once he left, Tamalee, who didn't believe his story, went to Pete's house and saw the horrific scene. Tamalee ended up telling the authorities, and they began to search for Peter Kakua. He was eventually found sitting by a fire on Newcastle Island. He was tried and convicted of the murders. The sentence was death by gallows. There were some injustices in his case that in one way are not that shocking for the time, but on the other hand, they could have been things that if done today, it might have resulted in a different outcome. Firstly, his original statement and supposed confession was written without the help of an interpreter, and his later statement cited possible self-defense. There were also numerous members of his true peer group who were available to sit on jury who were overlooked. The entire jury was made up of white men, which again at the time could have also affected the outcome. So some believe that Kanaka Pete was not given a fair trial, even if the outcome had been the same. The trial was not fair. And this might be why his spirit is so restless. So supposedly at the time, because he was neither Caucasian or First Nations, he could not, or rather they would not, bury him in any of the city's cemeteries. So he was ordered to be buried on the last place of freedom, which was the east side of Newcastle Island. This is not the end of the story, however, as he was disturbed 30 years later, when the Vancouver Coal Mining and Land Company dug up Pete's coffin as they dug their coal mine. They supposedly just reburied him in another unmarked grave, and no one knows exactly where. Now for the haunting activity, Kanaka Pete is said to still roam the island. His ghost has been seen on the beach at dusk, and his disturbed spirit is rumored to even cause the mine explosion in 1887 that trapped and killed 150 miners. These miners' bodies were never recovered and remain in the collapsed shafts below Newcastle Island to this day. So really, some of these experiences that happen on the island could be some of these lost miners as well. People have reported many creepy and eerie noises, and even though in the area that Kanaka is possibly buried, camping is not permitted. Other areas on the island, however, people have chosen for their overnight visit are just as creepy. People claim to hear screaming and chopping sounds and have even seen red glowing eyes in the darkness. There's also a popular story that claims that people have mysteriously disappeared on the east side of the island. This, as far as I can tell, is unsubstantiated. The story is that a group of students went missing while working on a project about the island, and that their footage was found, but they were gone. This was also linked to the stories of disembodied feet that have washed up on the Vancouver shore for the past few years. That's a whole other thing, and there's many theories as to what that could be. I'll put some links up on the blog, but I don't think this has anything to do with Kanaka Pete. I found the supposed video that was released by authorities, um, which is clearly a found footage indie movie. (laughs) I will say, good for the filmmakers, though, it obviously has its own little cult following and people have really believed it. So that to me shows good storytelling. So yay, good for that film crew. However, much like the Blair Witch Project, number one, the police would never release evidence, and especially evidence that depicts the real deaths of missing people. Number two, they most certainly wouldn't enter it into film festivals, (laughs) which this one was in and won, which that's great. And number three, always pay attention to the little things like sound. Unedited videos would have terrible sound. It wouldn't be movie quality. 
And if there's ever film footage from the killer's angles and things like that, that's a dead giveaway, no pun intended. So if you hear of the missing students and the found footage mystery, it makes a really good story, but it's not real. If there have been actual disappearances, I haven't been able to find any articles about this, so please let me know if I've overlooked something. Um, As I said before, I'm not the expert on things. I just share the evidence that I'm able to find and the stories that I get. This all being said, Kanaka Pete is apparently still out there. So if you visit Newcastle Island and you're able to find it, there is a placard that talks about Kanaka Pete. This next story is super interesting, and I learned a lot actually doing my research for this one. Usually I introduce the place first and then kind of go into history, but I think I'm actually going to talk about the history and the research first, and then I'll reveal the location in the story. So this has to do with the concept of doppelgangers. Chances are you've heard this word before, and you know that it basically means the double of a person. This was as far as my knowledge went. But what I didn't realize are there are so many cultures that have their own versions and legends about this topic. So I want you to pay attention to the elements of each and apply it to the story of the screaming doppelganger of Beacon Hill Park. The word doppelganger comes from the German word meaning double goer. And it is a wraith or an apparition of a living person, but not a ghost. This is very important. It's not a ghost. They're said to have no shadow and to be a replica of a living person. And they're usually an omen of impending death. There are actually a number of real-life cases where people have seen their own doppelgangers and have passed away after. This was the case with Abraham Lincoln and Queen Elizabeth I. Another element is that doppelgangers are sometimes described as being the photo negative of the person. So again, that's a really important part, so remember that. In Egyptian mythology, it's referred to as a ka who is a spirit double with the same memories and feelings as the other person. The Norse folklore version is another important one to our case. These entities are known, and I'm going to butcher this, I'm so sorry, as a var dodger, who are ghostly beings that precede their living double. So they may take their place at an activity or be seen by witnesses doing something before the actual person arrives. So remember this, this one's really important. The two other versions are the Scotland fairy-like creatures that are called trows and give birth to sickly babies called changelings. They will then switch the human baby for the sickly baby, who will then transform into an exact replica of the child. Finally, the Native American version is referred to as child of the sun and child of the water, and refer to the duality of upper and underworld. So now that you've been versed in the mythology and folklores behind doppelgangers, let's get into the story. Beacon Hill Park is a very busy and well-known park in Vancouver, and it's also home to the Screaming Doppelganger, a local legend that is very curious to say the least. In the 1970s, people witnessed a woman of dark skin and light hair standing unflinching, unmoving on a rock in the park near a busy corner. She was there every single morning, unemotional, just standing there, and this went on for months. She would ignore anyone who came to ask her if she was okay. They got no response, not even a look. Eventually, she was gone and people forgot about it, moved on with their lives. Suddenly, in 1983, people began to see another woman. This time, she had a light complexion and dark hair. 
And to those who were reminded of the woman in the 70s, they described her as a photo negative of the other woman. So remember the German mythology. She was standing in the same place as the first woman, unmoving, unwavering, unflinching. But the other thing that was different from the first woman is this woman appeared to be an apparition. She was not solid as the 70s woman was. She was mist-like almost. Then on November 15th, 1983, the body of Donna Martin was found in a shallow grave under some bushes right by the rock that the two women had been seen standing on. Donna Martin was of fair skin and long dark hair, matching the second woman, the apparition. She had been missing since June 2nd, 1983. People believe that the first woman was the photo negative and the doppelganger of Donna Martin and was standing where the body of the living double would eventually be buried. The second woman was the spirit of Donna who was trying to make sure that her body would be found. The cops eventually did find out who most likely perpetrated the crime, but when they closed in, he actually ended up hanging himself. So despite the police believing that they had enough evidence to say, yes, he was the murderer in her case, it still remains open after all of these years and will probably never be officially closed. So this might be why, ever since then, people have reported seeing a dark-haired woman usually sitting on the very rock the woman used to stand on in a meditative-looking pose. However, this part's really creepy. When people see her face, it's twisted in a silent scream. Few people have stopped to ask her if she's okay, only to be ignored. Then, when they walk away and turn back to look at her, she's either gone or dissolving like mist into thin air. This last story is about the famed British Columbia architect, Francis Rattenberry. His life and tragic end, which occurred in an entirely different country. But as you'll come to learn, that didn't stop his spirit from coming back to hang out at a few of his most famous buildings. Rattenberry was born in 1867 in Leeds, England. Despite his family's hope that he would continue in the wool business, Rats dreamed of being an architect and something that he was never short of was confidence. He arrived in Vancouver and in 1892, despite the lack of work for architects and especially new architects, he was determined to find work. Lucky for him, in an issue of The World on July 5th, 1892, there was an announcement for a competition to design the new legislative buildings in Victoria. This was an amazing opportunity for anyone and Rattenberry wanted it. He exaggerated his small amount of experience, but it was his design that actually blew the judges away, and he used the pen name BC Architect. Now this, people believe, might have been the deciding factor. He ended up winning against 60 applicants, and likely someone who had much more experience was in there. This design is what launched his career and made him a very, very well-known person in Vancouver and Victoria especially. He also designed the 1910 Provincial Courthouse, which is now the Vancouver Art Gallery, the Empress Hotel in Victoria, and he of course designed numerous other buildings, but his personal life became as much of a spectacle as the prominent buildings his name was attached to. In 1898, he married a woman named Florence Nunn, who even from the beginning seemed to be his opposite in many, many ways. While Ratz was good-looking, outgoing, and very charming, Flory was described as not particularly attractive and lacking social skills. But it was her sweet nature that appealed to him. The couple had a daughter named Mary, 
who by 1923, when her parents were no longer speaking, would carry written messages between the two. It was around this time that Francis met a beautiful young woman named Alma Packenham, who was 30 years his junior and was already on her second marriage. The sparks between them were instant, and an affair began much to the horror of Victoria's upper crust. Flory refused to grant him a divorce, so he moved Alma and her son into their home. Flory was living upstairs, and Francis, in an attempt to force her into a divorce, was entertaining his mistress directly under her nose, or her feet, rather. She eventually lost the will to fight for the ruined relationship, and she and Francis divorced in 1925. Soon after, Francis and Alma married and had a son. They were really happy together, but the growing hostility from Rattenberry's peers was mounting and seemed to reach a boiling point when Flory passed away in 1929. The two were essentially shunned from the community, and with work drying up for rats, the two decided to move to England in search for greener pastures. It wouldn't take much attention to realize that there were major issues cropping up in this relationship. Six months into their new life in England, the Rattenberries were living in a comfortable home with two servants, but Francis was becoming obsessed with the money that he wasn't making anymore. The stress of no income and Alma's minimal income was sending Francis into a depression. Alma was beginning to feel loneliness as her husband withdrew into himself and soothed his depression unsuccessfully with drink. She sought comfort in a 17-year-old boy named George Stoner. He applied to be the family chauffeur and handyman in 1934. The two began a relationship and Alma moved him into the spare bedroom, much in the same way that Frances had moved her into the home with Flory. She claimed later that Frances told her just, quote, to lead her own life, so this is what she was doing. Alma and Stoner were in love and he was insanely jealous of any attention she paid to her husband. He believed that he would become Alma's fourth husband. Alma suggested at one point that their relationship should end, and George became desperate with rage and fear. He convinced her to go away with him, and after a pleasant getaway, they came back to find Rattenbury drunk and talking of suicide. George became enraged once more when Alma ran to comfort him. This was obviously the last straw to a desperate George who didn't want to lose the only woman he'd ever loved. On the evening of March 25, 1935, Francis was found by Alma groaning with an apparent bloody head wound. Now this is where things start to get a little fuzzy. Who had hit Francis? The doctor arrived and Alma told him that he must have fallen and hit his head on the piano. But when the police arrived, her story changed, and she said that Francis tried to kill himself with a wooden mallet. Okay. <laughs> That would be a very difficult task and a really weird method of suicide. So then she said she had hit Francis with the mallet. Then she changed her story again and said that it was George who had done it. The authorities took Francis to a nearby nursing home for help, and Alma began to drink. She then offered the policeman who was staying with her a bribe. Then she tried to seduce him. So this raises red flags, doesn't it? (laughs) Was she in on the plan to do away with her husband? Was she covering up for George? Was she nervous now that Francis would come through it all and tell everyone what really happened? Well, it turns out the last thing certainly wouldn't happen, as Francis passed away three days later. 
The trial was a sensational one, and Alma and George were charged with the murder. They both pleaded not guilty. Stoner didn't deny hitting Francis, and his counsel pleaded temporary insanity. Alma was found innocent of all charges, and Stoner was found guilty. However, the jury recommended that the judge have mercy on the boy. The judge did not agree, as he gave George a death sentence and scheduled it for the 18th of June. Four days later, Alma was found in a local river with six self-inflicted stab wounds, three of which in the heart. She had left a letter and the final words were, What a lovely world we're in. It must be easier to be hanged than to have to do the job oneself. Thank God for peace at last. So was this her final admission of guilt? Due to this and a campaign for a more lenient sentence, George's execution was dismissed and his sentence was commuted to life in prison. Seven years later, however, he would be released. Francis and Alma were buried in unmarked graves in Bournemouth. But in 2006, a Victoria-based amateur historian and an engineer felt that Rattenberry, who was the subject of a book he was writing, deserved a proper remembrance. He received permission and bought a grey granite stone with an image of the legislature that he'd designed so many years ago, engraved on it. The bottom of the stone says British Columbia Architect, which as you will remember is what he would sign his work as. Now you might be thinking, okay cool, that's quite the story, but what about the paranormal? Well... His most proud work, the BC legislature, is also known to be haunted by Frances Rattenberry. A clerk years ago was alone at night working in her office when she looked out the door to see a figure in a black cloak floating down the hallway. It eventually turned and went into the library. She was so terrified that she called security and they checked, but there was nothing. She asked them to escort her out as she was just too scared to remain there by herself. They assured her that it was, quote, probably just Rattenberry. Apparently, sometimes there are small troops of actors who put on little historical plays for tourists. They'll dress up in period costume and portray historical figures. One time, there was an actor dressed as Rattenberry. He was waiting in the upper rotunda, and the other actors arrived and said, Hey, how did how'd you get here so fast? He said, What do you mean? I've been waiting for you guys up here. They said, no, we met you downstairs and you rode up in the elevator with us. So, hmm, was that the real Rattenberry? A librarian was working one night when one of the cleaning staff rushed in and asked her if she was just in the cataloging department. She replied that she hadn't been, and they told her they heard footsteps and shuffling papers, but no one was there. People have reported getting chills, seeing figures, and many reports of hearing things. The other place that's said to be haunted by Rattenberry is the Empress Hotel, which he not only designed, but also frequented. A young couple were in the lobby when a woman noticed a man in an old-fashioned suit looking around the corner at her. They walked up the staircase and she saw him again over her shoulder. He was suddenly standing at the bottom of the stairs. She told her husband and they both looked back only to see him disappear right in front of them. Another time, a couple was celebrating a milestone anniversary and finished up their dinner and began to head upstairs. They heard footsteps and someone was right behind them. They stopped on the landing so the person could pass, but the man did not. 
They began up the second flight and heard the same thing. He was right behind them. So they turned to confront him, but he was gone. They described the man as tall and thin with a mustache and a frock coat. There's another ghost, however, that's a frequent story at this hotel. A woman passed of natural causes years ago in one of the rooms, and the room was eventually demolished to make way for an elevator. And many people claim to be followed by an older woman who disappears once they get to the elevator. Or people will get a knock on their door, and it's an elderly woman in her pajamas who claims to be lost. People will then help her to her room, but she vanishes when they get to the elevator. So this brings us to the end of the episode and the end of my coverage of British Columbia. I hope you've enjoyed these last few stories. I hope you've enjoyed everything overall. Hit that subscribe button and the like button to show me some love and make sure you give me ratings as well. All of this helps me continue doing this podcast. As always, keep in touch with my social media accounts for updates. Both Instagram and Facebook can be found at Real Scary Podcast. If you've visited any of these places and have your own stories, please let me know via my email, realscarypodcast.gmail.com. And don't forget to check out the blog post for episode six. As always, you can find this on my website, realscarypodcast.ca, and click on the headings episode. I would also like to say that if you do visit these places, be sure to tag me and also let the people know where you heard about the location. I will be taking some time off just to get the next province's stories ready. So I do have some special little mini episodes, so they'll be coming out in the meantime. Please keep an eye on my socials for the information on when and where you can find those. I have some amazing stories coming up for you in Alberta. I can't wait for you guys to hear this. Until next time, this is your friendly neighborhood host, Elise.